All right. The bulletin says 1 Timothy 3.16, but we're going to read starting at verse 14. So three verses instead of one. So it's still a small portion of Scripture, but it's packed tight with stuff. We learn from the Apostle Paul who's writing to his protege Timothy who has been left at Ephesus to fix some substantial issues and address some serious problems. And all all of this through the superintending power of the Spirit. We read these words then. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Brothers and sisters, this is God's Word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before You now grateful for Your Word. We do not deserve it, but in Your kindness and graciousness You have given it. Help us to hear it, to believe it, to implement it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I miss the joy of Christmas that came with the innocence of childhood where all I thought about and all I perceived and all I experienced at Christmas time was fun. It really was a shocker for me as I grew up and then when I joined the army to learn that a great many people don't think Christmas is a fun time. Uh, and then I joined the army and I became a chaplain and I learned that, that December itself is not the month with the highest number of suicides. It's actually February. But that there's a whole lot of people who are depressed around the holidays. And a large part of it is stemming from the fact that they believe they're supposed to be happy and the fact that they can't be happy exacerbates their misery. Christmas time is crazy, it's hectic, and the world around us spins around wanting to conjure up the mojo, wanting to feel excited and hopeful. I made mention earlier in the service to to Hallmark Christmas movies. I mean, it's, it's okay to watch them. Don't feel guilty. But they're cliche and cheesy. Every scene has snow falling. We've watched a number of movies this week that take place in North Carolina. And I'm like, okay, North Carolina gets some snow, but it's not snowing all the time in North Carolina. 
right? But every time they look outside, there's like a veritable snowstorm going on, right? And, and people have, there's just green, it's just, everything is so cliche. And Christmas time is always just the happy time, and, and, and it's always the best time to do anything, and of course, especially to start a new relationship, and, and, and those strong relational feelings you feel when you're in the moment of Christmassy, of course those are authentic and genuine and should never be questioned. But anyway, <laughs> but we're never told why. Why should I be happy at Christmas time? I mean, none of them talk about Christianity or, or, or Christ at all. Sure, in most of them there's a church or a chapel and it's usually there's some sort of innocuous choir singing. They're even probably participants in the choir. But it's always some innocuous thing. There's never really any substance put to why Christmas is a joyous, or even should be, a joyous time of the year. Frankly, I'm surprised there aren't more people walking around with Ebenezer Scrooge's attitude that it's just a waste of time and money. Bah humbug. They should be drowned in their own pudding and with a stake of holly driven through their heart. Remember that? All right. I'm surprised more people don't have that attitude. Because when we're not told why we should have hope, it doesn't take too long, generationally speaking, before people start realizing that they're, that they're really treading in thin air. And then they'd make changes. In fact, we've seen changes in our society. As, as existential nihilism has become increasingly the norm in our society where everyone determines their own truth, and, and even as we have, as a society, ascended to lofty heights of technology and material accomplishments, I mean, just think we were driving on 92, where just a year ago it was a cliff and now, right there at the intersection, of, they've turned it into a road. They filled it. We can literally reshape the earth. That's the power we have. And yet we feel hopeless. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal this week. Some of you may have read it too. It spoke very bleakly about how Americans are addicted to outrage. And it asked if there was a cure. And it was pretty bleak. Addicted to outrage. And then I read this. If you are the sort of person who needs the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to inform you that Americans are miserable, it's now official. According to the nation's top public health agency, the rate at which we are killing ourselves is higher than it has been in more than half a century. Fifty years of relentless technological advances, social liberalization, optimization, and GDP growth. Five decades that brought about the end of the Soviet Union, communism, and the birth of a new global order based on free trade and open communication and an infinite array of goods and services. And what have we got to show for it? Suicide. The world is literally spinning out of control. And people around us want to know what is the meaning of Christmas? Why is it a happy time of year? Why should I deck the halls? 
Why should I buy the presents? What, what's the reason for the carols? That question was asked decades ago, and Charles Schultz answered it in Charlie Brown's Christmas. Remember Charlie Brown? He's frustrated with all the commercialism. And speaking of that, it's interesting to me. I, I complain about the commercialism of Christmas. Well, it was referenced in Charles Schultz's Charlie Brown from the 70s, and, and before that in Miracle on 34th Street in the 40s, the commercialization of Christmas. Maybe that's just part of Christmas now. Anyway, but Charlie Brown is asking, what's the meaning of Christmas? And who provides the answer? Linus. And famously, it's the only Christmas show where the birth narrative of Christ is read. And the amazing thing, this is not, this is not a new insight from me, it's been noted, Charles Schultz did a brilliant thing. Linus is, is characterized by his dependency upon what? His blanket. And what does he do when he's talking about Christ? He drops his blanket. That was not an artist's error. What he's saying is that because of what happened there at the coming of Christ, things were set in motion that had culminated in the victory of Christ. And in light of that, all of our fears, all of our worries, all of our insecurities could be laid down because they had been taken up and dealt with by Jesus. And indeed, the very things that we tend to cling on to, that we allow to define us as Linus was defined by his blankie, we indeed get a new lease on life. New birth. We become part of this new creation where we can be characterized by something other than the craziness that had been characterizing us before. So what is the meaning of Christmas? Well, what is the wrong question? We see here in verse 16, that the question should properly be, who is the meaning of Christmas? And we see this when he says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now he's about to unpack what is this mystery of godliness, which we will unpack, but he begins with a first person pronoun. What is it? He. The key to the secret that is the mystery of godliness is a he, the man Christ Jesus. And so that is the basis of the mystery, of the meaning of Christmas. It's bound up in the person and the work of Christ. Now the church has that answer. But brothers and sisters, let's ask ourselves honestly. Have we appropriated that truth to our own lives? Do we base our confidence in an uncertain age on the reality of the hope that is birthed due to the birth of Christ? That the darkness has indeed been pierced? That God has indeed 
borne our sorrows in his flesh. And that he has risen victorious. He reigns forevermore. Has that certainty birthed in you hope? If it has not, oh man, you are missing out. And if it has, then you see why we can celebrate and find joy in remembering the coming of the God-man. My prayer for you, my prayer for this church, is that you guys would always remember and cherish and support and cling to the truth of the gospel that originates in the advent of Christ. That is one of the most profound realities that once in history, a baby was born that was unlike any other baby. That as as this teething, drooling, snotty-nosed toddler was sitting there not able to feed himself, that that was God in the flesh. That is amazing. And he came that the people of God might be saved and that there indeed might be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Now, my time at this church is drawing to a close. Okay? But it's important that we understand as a people, as a people, the role the church has in protecting this truth. And the important and the irreproducible role we play in propagating this truth. The reason I backed up to verse 14 is I want you guys to see what you and I, we, what role we play. There is truth in the world. That truth was revealed by God, manifested in the flesh by Christ. Okay, there is truth out there. And the church exists as a steward and a herald of it. He wants us in verse 15 to remember that we are the household of God. Okay, this church, this body, look around right now to your, seriously, look, the people across the aisle, to your left, to your right, in front of you, behind you, you're the household of God. You know what a household is? What's another name for a household? Family. You're God's family. And that makes you brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters squabble, believe me, I know. But brothers and sisters also make up. And brothers and sisters also stand side by side when faced with an external threat. We're the household of God. We are the church of the living God. When He reminds us that we're the church of the living God, He's reminding us of two things. First, That we are members of the organization, institution, organism that Jesus himself is building. Remember, what did Jesus say? I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay? So we are a family over which God presides as Father. We are an assembly, a people over whom God is King. But not just that He's King. We are the church of the living God. Every other God that exists, every other object into which we place our hope and our confidence, whether it's, a, whether it's an officially recognized deity or just something we've deified, it's dead. It cannot save. And it's vain and futile to believe otherwise. But we serve the living God. And that was especially poignant for these readers to hear. If you recall, Timothy is in Ephesus. And what else was in Ephesus? One of the wonders of the ancient world. The great temple to Artemis. In fact, in Acts 19, when you read about the founding of the church in Ephesus, it's when, it's when Paul's ministry starts encroaching upon business that they start a riot. Remember Alexander the silversmith starts a riot? And what are they chanting? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They were proud of this temple. Again, it was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was massive. Over 120, I believe 127, massive pillars. Each of them over 60 feet tall. We marvel at Stonehenge. 60 feet tall. And this temple, with its cult, great, is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here, Paul is kind of taking their culture and tweaking it. You are the church of the living God. Artemis is nothing. But then, because they have that temple, that massive temple in their mind, I mean, it's in their line of sight. They step outside. If you've ever, you don't even have to go to Ephesus. You can, you can Google it and see where, where it was, the temple. And it was on the massive hill. I mean, it was, you could see it from miles around. And he says that the church is the, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Okay. Roman Catholic apologists get this dead wrong. They look at this and say, see, the truth is dependent upon the church. The church decides what is true. The church decides what is Scripture. Wrong. The church relates to truth the way pillars and support structures relate to a house. The truth exists. And we come alongside. Now, what does a pillar do on a structure? Think of that big temple. Well, it stands on the foundation. And it doesn't hold up the walls. The walls, especially if you've seen the, the diagrams of that, the walls were independent of the, the pillars. The pillars support and hold up and exalt the roof for visibility's sake. We indeed are ambassadors to the world. We are indeed a city on a hill. And our job to relate to the truth as a pillar is to lift it up, to exalt it, to put it on display. 
But of course, we're also a buttress to the truth. The truth is always under attack. Even now, you can go on Facebook and read, read, read articles where people are trying to, did God really say concerning homosexuality or what? Any, pick your topic. Always seeking to undermine, to, to, to be duplicitous, to twist, and if possible, to deceive even the elect. And so the truth needs to be reinforced. That's why the church exists to safeguard pure doctrine because false doctrine kills and the pure milk of the gospel gives life. The church doesn't decide what the truth is. The church defends it and proclaims it and shows it forth to the world. And brothers and sisters, that's my hope for you. That's what my hope is for this church, that it will continue to be. And in a world that's gone mad, this is how we can indeed show forth the hope that we can have in Christ at this time of year. Make use of the season. It's useful as, a, as an opportunity to speak into people's moods, whether they're depressed whether they're rejoicing in the created thing rather than in the Creator, it's an opportunity to remind them that darkness may seem to be prevailing, but Jesus has won. And so it's right at this moment that in verse 16, he says something, he begins this line, and again it seems to be an echo rebuke of the assertion of the Artemis cult. Because the Artemis cult says, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And what does he say here? Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. So he counters their claim. Now understand that in Paul, mystery and godliness mean very distinct things. Very, very specific things. Mystery is a technical term in Pauline language. He does not mean what we usually mean by referring to something as a mystery. When we talk of something as being a mystery, we think of something that we don't understand. It's a mystery to me. I don't understand it. And Paul, he very clearly and repeatedly uses the word mystery to refer to something that in days, in former days, specifically in the Old Covenant, something that wasn't revealed, but that now has been revealed. So the answer is there and it's knowable. And in this regard, he's referring to the person of Christ and the hope that Christ brings. And godliness refers to the right worship and conduct of somebody. You're not a godly person if you're not worshiping in spirit and in truth. You're not a godly person if you're an immoral person. Okay? So what we're having here in the mystery of godliness is, is the base, the answer to the question that pervades each of us, how can I have peace with God and peace in my soul? And that answer is a person. True godliness can only be found in and through Christ. He is the mystery of godliness. Godliness that a route a law that was only partially explained in the Old Covenant now has been made clear that the road to righteousness goes right through Christ, which is why it's He 
And verse 16 is either an early creedal statement or it's a song. The reasons for believing it's a song, um, it's six lines, your ESV, I don't, I don't know what other versions you have, but the ESV for sure lists verse 16 as six lines. Now in the Greek, there are two stanzas of three lines apiece. And in English verse, in English poetry, we like the last word of a given line to rhyme with the last word of the previous line. Greek poetry is a little different. They wanted the first word of a given line to rhyme with the first word of the previous line. And so verses 1, 2, and 3, rhyme. Verses, or lines 4, 5, and 6, rhyme. So two stanzas that rhyme. So we're not sure, is it, was this written this way to be just memorable as a creedal statement? Or was it from an early song? We don't know. But what we do know is that what we have here is a beautiful, beautiful articulation of the life and work and ministry of Christ. He was manifested in the flesh. Well, what is that referring to? The incarnation. That the Son of God took on flesh and He was truly manifested. He didn't just appear to be, He was. He was embodied. And that is so important for Christian orthodoxy because it means that He could be our representative. He could truly be our prophet, our priest, and then our king. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And that refers to His resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the vindication of Jesus. It proves that when He went to the cross and He took our sins there and He said it is finished before He died, He meant it. That the price of our salvation had been paid. And the resurrection of Jesus vindicates everything He said. And it proves that God accepted His sacrifice on our behalf. Because death no longer could hold a claim on him. Third, he was seen by angels. Now there are two interpretations here. The first is that angels refers to, to messengers. Because the word angelos in Greek just simply means a messenger. And So when is it a supernatural being and when is it a human messenger? We don't always know. For example, John the Baptist when he was in prison sent angeloi that's angels in the plural, to Jesus. Okay, So maybe it's talking about his, his messengers that Jesus has sent out, that they were eyewitnesses. Possibly. But my only criticism of that is that the apostles are never called angeloi. They're always called apostoli. Okay? I think it's referring to actual angels. Think of the role, the presence of angels at all the key points of Jesus' life. So who announced to Mary and then to Joseph that, that there would be a Jesus? An angel. Who announced the birth of Jesus? You know, to some shepherds? That's right. Okay. Uh, when Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil, who came and ministered to him? Angels. Okay. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's having that, 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 that intense emotional battle, who came and ministered to him? An angel. When he's resurrected, who are the first ones to announce the resurrection of Christ to, to the people who got there? Angels. Okay. 
When Jesus, when the apostles are looking dumbfounded up in the sky to, that Jesus has just ascended in Acts 1, who's there to remind them that Jesus will come again the same way they saw him? An angel. Okay. So what I believe he's saying is that the victory and vindication of Christ is known throughout heaven. Because now in the second stanza, he's making it clear that it's known throughout all the earth. So heaven and earth together proclaim the excellency and the sufficiency and the victory of Jesus. Which is why he goes on to say he's proclaimed among the nations. Because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And everywhere that people are, that is where the gospel needs to go. And so it is proclaimed among the nations. He's believed on it in the world. So he's not just proclaimed, but there's fruit to the gospel. There's a church everywhere. Even in Afghanistan. We have some brave brothers and sisters over there that braved the Taliban, Christians who braved ISIS, there are brave Christians in India who are braving Hindu militants. There's Christians that are brave. And of course, I'm sure you've read about the, the missionary who was killed recently in northern India, or an island off northern India. And all, and all I have to say is it's amazing how the, how the tide has turned. How when David Livingston, I mean, when he died, it, he was honored. You can read the story of Jim Elliot and hear that he and, and come away thinking he was brash. The cause of Christ causes people to do things that in the estimation of the world are foolish. But a person who is committed to Christ is willing to go and perhaps even die. So even if it's not your cup of tea, do not join the chorus of people condemning someone who was willing to give everything for Jesus. He's believed on in the world. Our call is to take this message, this, this precious truth, and he's taken up in glory. The final clause. Taken up in glory. He is ascended and the session of Jesus has begun. He reigns and he is putting all of his enemies under his feet until the last one to be put there is death itself. Jesus is victorious. And He will be victorious. So as you go out in this world, and it's all messed up, and people are literally killing themselves from despair, and you're looking at your schedule, and, and, and you have so much tension in your life, and just so many demands competing, and, and you're wondering, where's the joy? It's a who. Step back and look, because Jesus came. The worst affliction here is, isn't worth mentioning compared to the incomparable weight of glory that's reserved for us. So what's the mystery of Christmas? The mystery of Christmas is that in a world where darkness seems to reign, light and life have come. And if you are in Christ, you have that light and that life within you even now. And so you are free, brother and sister. You are free. You can walk and talk 
and dance and run and jump and shout for joy because the coming of Jesus proves that God keeps his promises. And so every promise he's made to you, man, you can count on him to keep. That's the mystery of Christmas. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for giving us Jesus. We thank you for this beautiful Christ song, this Christ creed. We thank you for giving us light and life in him. And we ask that we would be bold bearers of this message to a world that's killing itself. Help us to be faithful. Help us to defend it and to proclaim it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.